The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is David Sanderson. I hope you guys had a good holiday, good Christmas. Uh, I just got back from Minnesota, spending some time with my family up in the Twin Cities. Uh, Just got back yesterday. It was a a really good break. But uh, like I said, my name is David. I'm not the normal preacher here. Sam is on vacation. We're giving him a break. Eric preached last week and uh, me this week, and I think Sam's coming back the following week. But today we're going to spend time in uh, Revelation chapter 12, Uh, and I'm excited to be here this morning and in this text because I think it shows us a reality that we don't often think about, 
and that we can't see. Even if we've been taught about it or even if we believe in it or intellectually agree with it, uh, we don't think about it very often. The word apocalypse, which is what revelation means, uh, I think you've probably heard that throughout this uh, sermon series, the word apocalypse means to uncover or to reveal something that's been hidden. And this morning, we receive a new apocalypse from God, uh, a new reality, a hidden reality that we can't see. God pulls back the curtain and shows us the spiritual world, but not just a snapshot of it. We get to see kind of how the spiritual world has interacted with the physical world throughout history, today, and into the future. Now, obviously, talking about the spiritual realm, spiritual world, that's where objections begin to arise. Especially in our context, science explains everything, right? That's that's how we live. That's our culture. If you can't measure it, do experiments on it, touch it, taste it, smell it, then it doesn't exist. It's not real. The spiritual world is something that kids believe in, or it's something for horror movies and Ouija boards and ghosts. It's not real. No one really believes in it. Even in our more Christian context, we might say that the spiritual world exists, but that those realities are rare, that the spiritual world interacting with the physical isn't common. They're they're there, but they're separate. They don't interact or affect each other. We hardly even talk about the spiritual realm, angels, demons, the devil, even in our churches. This text confronts that this morning and talks about it the entire time. C.S. Lewis brings up this in his classic book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, In that book, he portrays a senior demon coaching a junior demon on how to kind of deceive his subject to make sure that he doesn't know that he's there. He says this, I do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly a comic figure in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, simply suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, then he cannot believe in you. So just like the patient in this story, we ignore the spiritual world. We we think of it as childish. We ignore the fact that there's a spiritual war waging all around us that affects our daily lives. It affects our emotions, our culture, our businesses, our jobs, our marriages. Even our worship here this morning is affected by the spiritual world. They're not coexistent and separate. They are overlapping and involve each other. This is a hugely important subject that we often ignore. And I think this morning as we come to this text, we need to admit, especially in our context, that we are far more materialistic and skeptical of these spiritual realities than we'd like to think. And going into a passage where God shows us the spiritual world, and in particular, one spiritual character, the devil, I think we need to check our our cultural bias at the door. I believe there are people here this morning that would intellectually agree that there is a devil, that there is a spiritual world, that angels and demons exist. But I don't think that all of us, well, I think that those people agree with those things, but don't, it doesn't affect the way they pray. It doesn't affect the way they live their life, look at suffering, look at their sin. Their everyday life isn't involved with the spiritual realities that they claim to believe. And I hope that this morning, this passage would open your eyes to the fact that the spiritual and the physical interact every day and affect our lives. Uh, Let's pray, and then let's jump right into this passage. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and what you're doing here. 
Uh, Father, I thank you for this passage. I pray that this morning we would see uh, our enemy for who he truly is. And Father, that we would celebrate with the angels in heaven the fact that he's been defeated and God, that we would anticipate the day that he's destroyed. Father, I pray that you'd hide me behind uh, your text this morning uh, and keep me true to your word. Father, we love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, this is a pretty interesting text. Uh, this is only my second time preaching, uh, and this is a fun one for a second time. Uh, but I'm really excited to preach through this. I, I, like I said, I think this text is very important for us. So, the last two months, we've been working through Revelation, uh, the great historic Christmas and Advent text of Revelation. Uh, but if you're just joining us today, 12 chapters in to the most intimidating book to most Christians. I think we always come to Revelation a little hesitant. We, don't, we assume that we're not going to understand it as soon as we open the book. But I hope that so far in this series, uh, we've been able to shed some light on this misunderstood book. And I hope that you've realized that this book was not written so that we could decode the day that Jesus is coming back. It wasn't written to split the church over different interpretations of the millennium or the tribulation or this or that. This book is about Jesus. This book was written so that we could see the glorified Christ and that we could be confident in the fact that God has complete victory over sin, death, and the devil. This book was written to a church that was being persecuted to give them hope in their future victory. And no surprise, that's where this chapter goes this morning. So chapter 12, it begins a new series of visions between the seven trumpets that we worked through last week with Eric and the seven uh, bowls coming up in chapter 16. In this chapter and the chapters following, we see a series of visions, but in this chapter we see two visions. Now before we get into it, it's important to know that these two visions are different, but they're the same. This is the idea of recapitulation that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. We saw it with the seven trumpets last week, that the seven trumpets are different from the seven seals, but they speak of the same reality. Two separate visions speaking of the same reality, one with greater detail and from a different perspective. And that's the pattern of recapitulation, and it's no different here. We see two visions about the same reality. One of them is short and straightforward, and the other one is longer and includes a break in the middle for a heavenly commentary on what's happening, almost a sermon in the middle of that vision. But remember as we get into this, two visions, one meaning. Okay, everybody tracking. It's important, don't miss that. Okay, so let's jump right in. Verse one. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and, a head of, and, a, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So a great sign, another transition into the fact that this is a new sign. It's not the same as the last chapter. It's a new sign entirely. And it's a woman. John begins to list off a few defining characteristics of this woman. She's clothed with the sun, the moon is under her, and she has a crown of 12 stars. Now a lot of people, when they begin to read this text, they immediately assume that this woman is Mary. And that's not hard to understand because in the following verses we see that she gives birth to Jesus. But I think that that is a, a misstep here because all of the imagery in the first two verses to a Jewish person, to a Hebrew Christian, would have immediately brought them back to the Old Testament, specifically to Joseph's dreams. 
If you remember the story of Joseph back in Genesis, he had a dream when he was a kid that uh, the sun and the moon and the stars would all bow down to his star. And in that dream, the sun, moon, and stars were his mother, his father, and his brothers, which at the time was Israel. So here in this passage, just like in Genesis, the moon, the sun, and the 12 stars represent Israel. The woman is Israel, the covenant people of God. Now, a lot of people stop there, but thinking that the woman is the ethnic Jewish people of Israel, but we need to go past that as well, dig a little bit deeper. Put your theology hat on with me for one second, because I think this is important. Uh, we're going to go to a couple different verses in the Bible that show us that this truly is Israel, but not the ethnic people, the Jews. Because Israel was not just a name given to a nation, but it was a name that God gave to his people. And Israel is more of a spiritual people than it is an ethnic people. The people of God make up Israel. The faithful followers of God are Israel. So uh, we're going to go to Romans 9 really quick. Romans 9, starting at verse 6, says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring would be named. That's a point back to Genesis. This means, still in Romans, this means that this is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So not all of ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are members of the spiritual people of God. Paul is teaching here that the people of God, are, the offspring of Abraham, are not decided by ethnicity, but by the promise and work of God. Now let's look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 says, uh, starting at verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is Paul speaking to people who weren't Jews, Gentiles. Remember at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then jumping down to 19, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul even goes as, goes as far in Galatians to say that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Paul is talking to Gentiles, people who were cut off from Israel, people that God had forbidden Jews to marry into, uh, telling them they were ceremonially unclean. And Paul here is saying that you people who were cut off have been brought in, you are part of Israel in Christ. So what we see in the New Testament is that Israel, the covenant people, the spiritual people of God, because of the work of Christ, has been fundamentally changed. It's no longer the ethnic community of the Jews, the Hebrew people, but it is the faithful to Christ. So in the New Testament, Israel is rightly called the church. If you're in Christ this morning, you are part of Israel. So then coming to Revelation chapter 12, we need to rightfully understand that the woman, Israel, is not the ethnic people, but the spiritual people of Israel the covenant people of God. So let's keep reading. So the woman is pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So here we see a new character in the story. The great red dragon, which is later identified as the devil. Why use a dragon to represent the devil? I think it points back to the Garden of Eden, where the devil appeared as a serpent. Here he's a dragon. The two are very similar. But also, throughout the Old Testament, all of the nations and powers that persecuted the people of Israel were called dragons. We see that in Exodus with Pharaoh. He was called the great dragon. We also see that the devil here has seven crowns and ten horns on his head. What what do all these things mean? The horns should remind us back in Revelation chapter 5 of the seven horns on the lamb's head. There they symbolized the completeness and worthiness of the lamb to take the scroll from the father. And here they symbolize the completeness of oppression on a worldwide scale. The devil's influence and ability to make people suffer is complete. It's worldwide. And the seven crowns on his head also speak to the character of the devil, his life mission and goal to replace or dethrone God. So he makes his false claim of power, trying to impersonate God, trying to replace him. He makes his false claim by wearing these crowns. Just as Christ in Revelation chapter 19, when he returns for the final time, is described as wearing many diadems. It also says that his tail swept down a third of the stars. This is another description of who this dragon really is. He himself used to be an angel or a star. But when he rebelled and sinned against the Father, he brought with him many angels down by his deception. And we learn in other places that these angels are now his demons. They're fallen angels, evil spirits. So, where are we at in the story? The woman is in labor. The dragon has come down and positioned himself to uh, kill her child. And this, again, this speaks to the character of the devil too, that he's willing to attack a pregnant woman or an infant child, that he's that uh, insidious. So who is this child? We know who the woman is, we know who the dragon is, who is the child? I think this one is fairly obvious. Uh, It says in verse five that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this this child is a king and he's a judge. He rules with a rod of iron and he is uh, lord over it. He is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. But in this vision, almost as soon as he's born, he's caught up to heaven. We get... Christmas and Easter in the same verse, like half a verse. And it seems almost like his entire uh, ministry in life is just completely skipped over. I think that's kind of important to notice because the point of this vision is not to give a lot of description about the life of Christ or the ministry of him or what he did. Even his death on the cross is completely left out of this passage. The point of it is to point us back to Genesis chapter 3, where the first prophecy of the Messiah was given. In Genesis 3, right after humans were deceived and fell, when the devil tempted them, they rebelled against God. God gives them a hope, a prophecy of someone who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, the the seed of the woman. And we see that almost directly paralleled here. We have the woman, the people of God. We have her seed and a war waging between the serpent or the dragon and that child. That prophecy back in Genesis also leaves out a lot of the story, but it focuses in on this battle. And so what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 12 is something that's been anticipated and waited for since Genesis chapter 3. So this is a long-awaited battle for the people of Israel. 
So the child is born, he's caught up to God and to his throne. And verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That uh, 1,260 days is the same number, amount of time in uh, Revelation chapter 11 that the two witnesses were allowed to prophesy uh, while the devil was reigning on the earth and the temple was being trampled. It's interesting to, to note that during that time, the devil was at work, he's destroying the temple, but God is protecting his people. There's a place where he's holding them and nourishing them so that they will not be destroyed as even the temple is. So that, that's the end of the first vision. Like I said, this is a simpler vision. It's fairly straightforward. It has things in it that the Christians would have recognized, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. It gives a little bit of an insight into the spiritual realities around it, but it doesn't go too deep into it. But remember what I said at the beginning. Two visions about the same reality. The first one simple, the second one from a different perspective, but also giving more detail. So let's jump into that. Starting at verse seven, we get the second vision. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here we see the beginning. This is the first half of this vision. The vision or this, this vision consists of some narrative and then a heavenly commentary on what's going on, and then he finishes up the vision. So that, that's the first chunk of this vision, and you're probably thinking I'm crazy because it really doesn't sound like that's about the same thing. In fact, the woman and the child are nowhere to be seen in this vision. The only consistency is the dragon. But I'm, I'm not crazy. This, isn't, this is exactly the same thing. What we see here is that during the life of Christ, Satan was fighting back against the work that Jesus was doing. Instead of seeing the events from the perspective of the people on earth, in this vision we see a spiritual parallel to those events. Satan fighting back and heaven fighting against him for the work of Christ. And what we see here is that during this spiritual war that was probably waging for the entire life of Christ, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies and resurrects, three days later, this battle turns. Michael and his angels begin to win the war over Satan and throw him out of heaven. And what we learn is that Christ's victory on the cross was the same victory in the battle in heaven. Michael's victory was Christ's victory. Then, like I said, in the middle of this vision, we get this break for a spiritual commentary. Heaven is telling John, the writer, what's happening, why this is important. So read, read verse 10 with me. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So something incredible, truly incredible, has happened in this vision. But I fear that because we don't think of the spiritual realm, we don't think of the devil, we don't know much about him, I fear that we're missing out on what they're worshiping. The angels are jumping up and down for joy of what's happening, and we seem a little cold. I think a lot of us would hear that the devil is defeated and go, yeah, that, that's cool. The devil's bad, so probably a good thing that he's defeated, yeah. 
But because we don't understand who the devil is, what he does in our life, and how he affects us day to day, I think that we completely miss the significance of what's happened here. So I want to spend some time understanding who Satan is. So first, the Bible teaches us that Satan is an angel, and that tells us a lot about him, what type of creature he is. He's an angel, so he was created by God. This means that he isn't the brother of Jesus. He isn't the yin to God's yang. He isn't the dark side that, you know, balances the universe. Satan is a creature. He's created by God. He's an angel, so that tells us a few things, that he has a personality. He's capable of emotions and decisions. He has motives and thoughts and choices just like you and me. We also see that he's a spiritual being. Angels are not physical, they're spiritual. He can interact with the physical world, and indeed he does, but primarily he is a spiritual being. And we also know that because he's created, that he is limited. God's sovereignty over all creation extends to the angels and therefore to Satan. We see that in scripture in the book of Job, when the devil comes before the father and has to ask permission to persecute Job. We also know from Isaiah that Satan is an angel, but he's a fallen angel. That before the physical world was created, before creation in Genesis 1, Satan rebelled against God. In his pride, he thought that he could replace God. And so he subverted the authority of the Father. He deceived many angels to fight with him, and he tried to take the place of God. But he was defeated before the foundation of the world. And he was cast out of his position, Satan and his demons. So Satan has one goal, to replace God by stealing his glory. And how does he do that? I said that the devil, Satan, influences your daily life. What do I mean by that? I mean two things. Satan is a deceiver and he's an accuser. So Satan is called the father of lies in John 8, 44. And again here in verse 9, in Revelation 12, and 9, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. So Satan, the deceiver, his goal and his deception is to suffocate and blind people to the glory of God, to diminish your love for God, or even better, pull you towards hating God, being angry at him. He tells us lies just like he lied to Adam and Eve. He tells us lies about the character of God. He says things like, he doesn't love you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's left you alone. You'll never be the person he loves. He's left you to your sin. He wants us to believe that God doesn't love us, that he isn't working for us, that he doesn't have our best interests in mind. Everything that we just sang in that last song, he wants us to think is false. He also tells us lies about who we are. He tells us that we'll never be good enough, that no one could ever love you, that you ruin everything. He's that voice in your mind constantly bringing up your sin again and again, telling you you'll never change and that no one wants you. Satan's goal is to blind you to the reality that God loves you, to blind you to who you are in Christ, and to tell you that your brokenness is your condemnation. He drives people into deep anxiety and spiritual depression through his deception, and he pours out guilt and shame on the life of the believer. He also tells us lies to tempt us to sin. 
So we see lies about who the, who the Father is, lies about who we are, and lies about sin. He, he tells you things like, only this one time, or uh, it'll make life better, I deserve this, the things that we all tell ourselves to justify our sin. And again, his goal here is to lead you into a life that will strangle you. He wants you to find happiness and pleasure and rest in your sin anywhere but in God. His goal is your pain, despair, and ultimate destruction. I think one thing in pop culture we see a lot of times that uh, people that are atheists or uh, despise Christianity and worship Satan, they think that, that Satan is the god of fun, that God has all these rules and restrictions and he's all about purity, but Satan is about fun and what I actually want to do. And so people worship Satan. But Satan's goal is not your joy. It's not your enjoyment, your fun. He doesn't want you to have a good time. His goal is your ultimate destruction and despair and pain. We also see that Satan is not only a deceiver, but he's an accuser. We see this in Job as well, where he accuses Job before God. He tells God that Job doesn't really love him, he only loves his benefits, and that if you take away what he has, he will curse you. And Satan says those same things about us. Satan, the accuser, is standing before God, rehashing your sins over and over again. The worst things about you, he finds and he brings to God again and again. Satan sees uh, every sin that we do just like the Father does, and he brings it before God in right accusation. Because the worst thing about Satan's accusations is that they're true. Satan is a deceiver, but in his accusations, he makes true claims. He tells God of the sins that we've actually committed and who we actually are in our depravity. Because we don't love God the way that we should. We do only often love God when it's easy for us. We only love other people when they do something for us. We're deeply selfish and self-centered people who don't worship God rightly. Satan sees all those things and he brings them to the Father and he sits there and waits for you to do it again so that he can say, you see him? He didn't repent. He doesn't love you. He doesn't believe the gospel. He hasn't changed. How could you love that unrepentant sinner. Satan is waiting with bated breath to bring your sin to the Father again. And so this is our enemy. This is Satan, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers. Satan is the one who tempts us to sin and then he makes sure that God hears about it. It's like a little tattletale. And this is who's been defeated by Christ's death and resurrection. From the beginning, Satan has been prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to destroy. But God hasn't been sitting idly by and letting him have his way. God made a promise early on, like we read in Genesis chapter 3, that he would send someone to crush Satan. That Satan would not be allowed to do this forever, but that eventually he would be destroyed and I want to look, he makes, these prophe- he makes that promise again and again throughout the Old Testament. I want to look at one specific one. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of the later books in the Old Testament, uh, part of the Minor Prophets. And in this chapter, chapter 3, Zechariah is shown a prophecy of, or not a prophecy, sorry, a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the courtroom of heaven. 
So read with me, uh, chapter three, verses one through five. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So we see here Joshua from, obviously, right after Moses, he led Israel. Joshua standing before God in the courtroom of heaven and Satan, the accuser, standing right there waiting to accuse him of all of his sins to bring up all of the times that Joshua was unfaithful, to bring up the times that Joshua doubted God's power and his presence with the people of Israel, to show God the times where Joshua failed in his leadership and in his zeal for the Lord. But in verse two, we see what God does. Verse two, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand or a stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Zechariah has shown an image of Joshua the high priest being forgiven of his sins despite the accusations of the devil. Satan is standing there bringing up his sin again and again and God says to his face, rebuke you, Satan. And instead of punishing Joshua for the sins that he's committed based on the rightful accusations of the devil, God clothes him with new clothes. He removes his dirty garments and gives him pure vestments. Joshua was defiled and God made him clean. And then at the end of this chapter, uh, starting at verse eight, we see another promise. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord. He's about to make a promise. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So we get a promise here in Zechariah that what happened to Joshua will happen to the whole land in a single day. That Satan's accusations will mean nothing and God will clothe us with righteous garments. And unlike Satan, God is not a liar. He keeps his promises and he kept this promise. God sent the branch, his son, Jesus, to defeat Satan. Satan saw it coming. He tried to devour Jesus when he was born as a child, when he was defenseless, but he failed. And then Satan deceived one of Jesus' followers, Judas, to kill him. And God flipped that on his head and used the work that Satan had meant to destroy Jesus, to destroy Satan. Jesus took our guilt and shame that was the result of our sin and paid for its price on the cross. Where he defeated Satan because of this. Satan, the accuser, standing before the throne room of God, has nothing to accuse anymore. Jesus paid the price for every sin. He, he made right every crime. There's no more grounds for any accusation. Satan had a position in heaven, a position in the throne room of God as the accuser. But now, because of the work of Christ, there is nothing to accuse us of. 
So Satan, where once he was before the Father, is to stand ready to accuse us of our sin. Now we have Christ interceding before us before the Father, pleading our case with God. No longer is our sin being brought up again and again and again before God. Now we have the righteousness of Christ and Christ pleading our case before the Father. And we too, like Joshua, our dirty clothes are removed from us and we're given righteous garments. Read verse 11 with me. I need to be on the right page. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for their loved, not their lives, even until death. The sacrifice of Jesus is the power to defeat Satan. Put your faith in Jesus. He's the only one who can intercede before the Father on your behalf. He's the only one who can remove Satan from his place as the accuser. Without him, there's no hope. Have you done that this morning? Or are you still trying to prove the devil wrong? Because you won't be able to. You can't do it. I plead with you to give yourself to Christ. Rest in his work for you. So verse 12, we see the end of this heavenly commentary, this break in the vision. 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So the end of this commentary, we get a a shout of joy that the devil has been defeated, but then a warning because he hasn't been destroyed. The devil has been defeated and removed from his place, but he's still alive and well at work in the world. And heaven is giving us a warning that we should be aware of the fact that the devil is very angry. Let's keep reading. Let's read the rest of this vision here, down from 13 to 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus." So Satan is defeated, and not, but not destroyed. He's cast down to the earth where the woman is, where we are. This is the post-Jesus woman. So remember, this is the church in this part of the vision. The devil is pursuing the church with the same tactics of deception and accusation that he always has. And in this chapter, it's shown as a river flowing from his mouth. Deception and accusations are perversions of the mouth. And so it's described as a a river that he's trying to sweep us away with, with a flood. But the woman is given wings of an eagle, which is the same imagery, interesting, it's the same imagery from Exodus where Israel is leaving Egypt and God gives them wings like an eagle to flee. So God saves the woman from Satan and he continues to save her from uh, Satan's pursuit. Satan comes with his uh, river from the mouth, and God opens up his mouth, interestingly enough. The, the earth opened its mouth, 
and absorbed what Satan had said. The woman here, remember, is the corporate group, the people of the church. And then we see at the end that the devil is so frustrated with his inability to destroy the woman that he goes off after the offspring of the woman. The offspring here represents you and me, individual Christians, where the woman is the corporate group of the church and God's protection of her is the promise that she will never be destroyed, that the church, the mission, the people of God will always stand firm despite what the devil does. We see here that, this, that Satan is so frustrated with his inability to get at her that he comes after us individually. And so this is where we live today. We're in this time where Satan is defeated but not destroyed and where our victory is secure but the battle is still raging. Satan is still attacking. And for most of us who've experienced the devil's lies and accusations in our own life, it really doesn't feel like Satan's been destroyed. It doesn't look like we are victorious. It doesn't look like God has won over the world. And if we're honest, I think we give in to Satan's lies on a regular basis. We, we believe what he tells us. We doubt God. We question who we are. We believe that sin is good for us, or at least in the moment we do. So how is this victory? We're told that we're victorious. We're told that we've conquered, but it doesn't feel like it. I think we need to realize that the, the truth of the matter is that we are in danger, that we still have an enemy who's coming after, to dis, coming, coming after us. He wants to destroy us. He's still seeking to replace God. He's still seeking to bring us with him. His goal is still our destruction and suffering. But just like God gave the promise to Zechariah that he would send the branch, we have a promise, that Jesus will come again and destroy Satan, finally. We'll get to those chapters in the coming weeks. We'll see this dragon thrown into, a pit, thrown into a pit. And we have that promise. And we know that God keeps his promises. So although we are in danger, although our enemy is still pursuing us, and his attacks are to be taken seriously, we have a hope. We should live our lives in danger, but from a position of victory. If we are in Christ, we have the promise of the future defeat of Satan, but we also have promises in this chapter that are meant for today. We have a present hope. God protects and nourishes his people. We see it twice where the woman flees into the wilderness to a place that God has prepared for her, where he nourishes her and cares for her. If you look at the last five verses of the second vision, it's interesting to note that we don't see the woman waging war against the devil. God doesn't hand the woman a sword and tell her to take some swings. The, the woman is not on the offensive. In fact, we see the woman just fleeing, and we see God stepping in to act. God defends this woman, and he gives her wings to fly away. He moves the earth to defend her against the devil's attacks, and he nourishes her in the place that he has prepared for her in safety. The emphasis in this chapter is not on our offensive against the devil. There's nothing about that here. The emphasis of this chapter is that God acts for his people. God takes action. He comes to the aid of his church. And no matter what Satan tries, he's only more frustrated. He'll never be successful. It's a battle he can't win. 
That's the promise for us here, that the mission of God, the people of God, the church, us individually and corporately, cannot be destroyed by the devil. And God protects us. He does all of this by himself. We have no role in this fight. Our role is simply to run. Just like the woman's fight here, we rely completely on the work of the Lord in our individual fight. The New Testament is really clear on this, not just in this passage, but in a few other places. James 4 says that we should submit ourselves then to the Lord and resist the devil. 1 Peter 5 says that we're to be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. The call for you and me is not to take up arms and go after the devil. It's not to cast him out of everything around us. It's to stand firm in the faith, to resist his lies. The devil comes after us with the same attacks that we see in this passage. Lies about who God is, lies about who you are, accusations of your sin, your guilt, your shame. He comes at you with those same things. And our role is to resist. He wants you to forget the gospel. He wants you to forget your adoption, forget God's character. And God's command to you is not to turn and run, but to resist, to stand firm in the faith. How do we do that? Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. The fight against Satan is the fight to believe the gospel. The fight against Satan, the power that we have against Satan, is standing firm in the blood of the lamb. The same blood that cleansed us of our unrighteousness, that gave us new righteous garments, that makes Satan's accusations against us groundless. That same blood is what helps us to stand firm against the lies of Satan every day. When he deceives us towards sin, when he tempts us to not believe who God really is, when he tempts us to believe that we're not who God tells us we are, we stand firm in the blood of the Lamb. And we rest assured that we will be victorious because Jesus rose again, defeating Satan's power, proving his power over death and the grave and Satan. And Jesus is coming again soon to destroy Satan finally. Our victory is secure. This fight is completely won. And as we come to the table this morning, we're given a physical reminder of Christ's work. In, in fact, it's, it's an aid in the battle against Satan to be reminded physically of who God is truly and what he did for us truly, who we are in him, ammunition that we need to stand firm in the faith and resist his lies. So as we come to the table this morning, I pray that you would cling to that truth, that you would take in the blood and the body of Christ and remember what he's done for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We praise you that he defeated the devil for us on the cross, that he clothed us in righteousness, and that he's coming again to destroy him for good. I pray that you would hold us tightly this week, Father, that you would keep us from the devil, that you would keep us from falling to his snares and his lies, that we would stand firm against his deceitfulness. Help us to cling to your truth, to hold tightly to the gospel. Father, we love you, and uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.